On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Don Robertson drops in. We chat about how it is that boxing seems to still find itself doing what it does, despite the fact that so many bouts end up in controversy, including this last one on the weekend that somehow resulted in a draw. Also, should the NHL just keep adding teams? Why stop at 32 when Seattle's allowed? Let's go to 40. Let's hit 48. Don't stop until every city has an NHL team. Stick around. It's worth a listen. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson. He is the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys Hockey Club. He is the owner and operator of ComChoice Realty. He is... um, That's good. That's good enough? Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there then. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, let's start here, Don. We've got a bunch of stuff in the world of sports to talk about. And I want to start here because I saw bits and pieces of highlights and things and have read a ton about this since there was a big boxing match on the weekend. Yep. Heavyweight championship fight. Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury. Deontay Wilder is an American guy. He's the champ. Tyson Fury is a Brit. He was the challenger by... Literally every single piece that I've written by every analyst I've heard, I've watched, every single person has acknowledged that even though Wilder, who is the champ, knocked Fury down twice in the fight, every other round Fury put on a clinic. He dominated the fight other than those two knockdowns. The one headline on Vice Sports, which I think captures it perfectly, and the fight ends in a draw, by the way. And the, the headline is, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder fight year's most one-sided draw. Every person, the people apparently who were scoring it live on the fight, the people who were in the highlights afterwards, the writers, everyone said, Tyson Fury won this fight hands down, wasn't close, no problem. Yes, he got knocked down, but this was a clinic. And yet boxing somehow, once again, finds a way to have a fight not come to a satisfying ending. How is this sport even still around? Because it seems, Don, as though way more often than not, people don't walk away feeling satisfied with what they've seen. I think it just creates interest. I mean, it's there's been talk of fight fixing. Forever. Guys taking dives. Forever. Um, Judges being bought forever. Yeah. The, the, uh, the mob paying guys to fold up like a Forever. cheap suitcase. So I don't know why you'd be surprised. What boxing doesn't have, and had for a long time, were personalities. And when that's There's gone... There's a couple, but not many. Not like there used to be. No, but everything you read, Fury's the American, right? No, he's the Brit. He's the Brit? Yeah, he's the Brit. The, so the American was the brawler. and he's, he's, That's the guy who knocked him down a couple times. Yep, so yep. I heard the same reports. And um, it's... You have to say the fix is in because boxing is struggling. It's not like it was when uh, Ali was around and Frazier and, and uh, Mike Tyson. You know, I mean, it was it was pretty hot news in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and it's really struggled to, uh, in the 2000s. And I think that when you smell a rat sometimes, when you have a draw, you got a perfect rematch. And yeah, there you go. yeah, but as it was pointed out here that I don't want to repeat myself, but pretty much everybody said this was a lopsided fight with those two knockdowns. But even if you give Wilder those two rounds, you say, okay, you know, those knockdown rounds, he wins both of those. The one judge that pushed it over to end up being a draw 
gave seven rounds to Wilder, who by everybody's assessment lost handily. And somehow this judge found seven rounds that he won. And Don, I look at this and I think to myself, I don't understand. I can't understand anymore why people would pay big money for a pay-per-view, big money to go to sit in the stands, big money for whatever, to watch something. You may enjoy the action. But if you don't ever have a, or if you often don't have a satisfying ending, you walk away being frustrated, being ticked off. And I just don't understand how people keep doing it and how boxing keeps getting away with it. Well, they're not getting away with it very well. Well. I mean, really. I mean, it's not, it's not top of the mind much. I'll bet millennials you'd have to explain to them what it was. I mean, with the MMA. There's a fight or two every year that still draws people's attention. It's not like it was where it was every weekend before. But there's not everybody. You won't have a lot of boxing fans uh, kicking and screaming because Ali or Tyson are sitting there waiting to take on the winner so you can have a bigger match. No. There's nobody around. This is it. This was the height for these guys probably. This was as good as it was going to get. I mean, if the guy wins, he gets to fight you. Well, I hope not. There's a bad... I mean, there's another big fight in Montreal where a guy got really hurt. Yep, the Canadian guy. The Canadian guy, the 41-year-old, and I don't know how he's doing. I have not heard recently, but he's not doing well. Yes, he was He was taken to hospital in critical condition and is now apparently in stable condition, which is good, I think. In an induced coma. Put it this way, it sounds better than critical. Yes. But given but that, your druthers, you would rather have no condition. But you don't put condition. You never say condition if things are really good. How are you, Don? I'm in exceptional condition. No, no. The condition is only applied when things have gone poorly. But boxing has always been, um, and I look at you're the journalist, but the <clears throat> civilized brutal sport. You know, people would go in tuxedos. Adonis and, Stevenson, by the way, is the boxer that you and about. Um, ladies would wear fur coats and. You know, it w- you had to be really high-end to get close. I mean, it was a very dignified, brutal gathering, gathering of the distinguished people in whether it was New York, Las Vegas, wherever it was. I mean, it was a, really a high-end thing and a great place to be seen. Now, not so much. Well, it seems as though, and I don't know when it all started. You're right. There was a time when, I mean, the, the name The Sweet Science, when it was seen as a gentlemen would do this sport. Yes, it was trying to hit the other guy in the head, but it was a gentleman's sport. There were the Marcus of Queensbury rules. There were very clear rules on how you behave and you would have a winner. And I don't remember now, you know, obviously I'm not 75, 80, 90, a hundred years old. I don't remember what happened way back in the day, but it seems that once upon a time you didn't have these fight after fight after fight that ended in controversy. That there were, the winner was the winner and you usually had someone win. Now, maybe that's because they would fight till someone was knocked out cold. So it's pretty hard to fudge that. I don't know. But this is a recent thing, it seems, that the tinkering or whatever else is being done with judges that leaves you saying the WWE is probably less rigged than this. You know, the, the, the media and social media and the immediacy of everything has really changed the world in the last 10 years. But years ago, when fights were on in black and white, if you even saw them, there was Saturday night fight nights, you had to rely on the, uh, uh, the reporters and your newspaper um, accounts of it. 
And now everybody can judge for themselves, and the world has changed so much. I don't know if that's changed boxing. It doesn't seem to have because it, apparently there was a clear-cut winner, and they called it a draw. I say it conveniently becomes a draw so you can have a rematch. Which is not wrong. Because now there's because there's nobody else to fight. The promoters are in the business of promoting fights. When you've only got really two, maybe three options, you better keep those guys front and center. But And I think you and I may be talking in cross paths here because you're absolutely right. When you have a draw now, you go, oh, okay, maybe we can do a rematch now. I, I understand that. There are easy ways, though, to fix this. If boxing wanted, and this, this is to your point, I don't think they want to fix it, even though they scream and they yell and they say they want to. There is a really easy way to fix this, and that is you don't you have a pool of twelve judges or whatever, and you don't know who that who who's judging that fight until they walk up and sit ringside. So if you want to buy off the judges, you're going to have to spend an awful lot of money because they don't even know if they're going to be doing the doing the fight. You have you don't that's tell hard, anyone, that's the, but that's not hard to do. So you get to enough of them. Yeah, and say if you, you make it harder though, you make no, it no. But if you if you're picked, here's two hundred grand. If you're not picked, I'll buy you lunch. Like you still whitewash it. There's ways around it. There is. It, it would. I think it would be harder if you had a pool of and not just harder, the three announced ahead of time who they're going to be. Bad bad guys don't always pick the easy how, way. How come we don't have widespread? I mean, I'm sure it happens at times, but how come we don't have widespread jury tampering with big trials? Because you don't, it's really hard. Once the jury has been selected, they don't, they're not accessible. It's hard to get to the jury, usually, especially if they're, not quarantine, what's the word I'm looking for? If they're, um, if they're kept to themselves, it's really hard to get to them. Sequestered, thank you. John Gotti. It's very hard. But if you can get to them ahead of time. Sometimes you you don't have to get to them ahead of time. Well, you can just scare the crap out of them if it's a mob thing. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know anything about that. But. Well, I, I, I actually, I got my first jury summons. Got to go early in the new year. I'm kind of hoping it's not a mob thing. I mean, I'd prefer to live through the process. <laughs> Just saying, as a preference. But anyway, I mean, I, boxing could fix this if it really wanted to. Yeah, it but, really could. But it's it's been going on for so long. And you're right. I, do they really want to? I mean, I haven't followed it in such a long time. Are there still 12 different heavyweight champions in the world, the ABC. Something like boxing. that. I'm not sure it's 12, but there may be 11. The XYZ, you yeah. know. And, and never will they cross. And, and, then, and then what they do is they'll come up with the, well, it's got to be a super fight. Because finally the two of them are going to meet. Yeah. Well, they should have fought 18 fights ago when they were both on their way up, but they've m- managed to avoid yeah. They put them in the same ring because now one's 43 and one's 46 and say we're at the end of the line. George Foreman, is he still boxing? He might be. He's like 81 now. He might be, although he did win the championship when he was 42, I think. So yeah. he was, you know, he was still somewhat okay at it. But I, I just look at this sport and you know who I feel bad for in this? There are a lot of people. There's a guy in town who, who is a boxing trainer, a boxing coach in town by the name of Vinnie Ryan, who's an amateur. He teaches amateur fighters. He's been a coach for Team Ontario and Team Canada and various things. And I, I think he is one of the upstanding citizens of this community and has done great things for local kids and local boxers. It's guys like him and guys like the fighters who are under him that I feel badly because when people think of boxing, they don't necessarily separate 
the Deontay Wilders and the Tyson Furies from the guys who were fighting Olympics. And we've seen it in Olympics too, heaven knows. Back in 1988 in Seoul, Roy Jones, who became one of the great pros of all time, got robbed unbelievably at the Olympics. They gave the title to, a, I think, a South Korean fighter. And Roy Jones, I don't think he got hit once in that whole fight, and the other guy was left looking like a bag of applesauce. It, it is possible, but I think I feel badly for the amateurs who are fighting, as I say, amateur fights, Olympic-style fights, who are now, their sport is tarnished by this crap. It's a funny sport, right? I mean, we, we talked about the elegance of it and how fa- famous it was, how popular it was and everything else. And then you get into, um, I mean, the object is to knock a guy out. And with all the concussion talk in hockey and every other sport around, maybe the brutality of it because of our mindset nowadays has really changed as well, which has taken some of the shine off it. I mean, how many kids, I think everybody's head's softer. I mean, there's more concussions now from next to nothing sometimes than, and then you look at boxing where the object is to knock the guy's block off. I mean, let's see if we can knock them out. I, I, I don't, the sensibilities have definitely changed. I still like watching a good boxing match, but I just don't know how this sport is still surviving with the changes in sensibilities, with the fact that time after time after time, you have these crazy decisions that make no sense that drive everybody bananas. And look, I didn't pay whatever the amount was. I saw highlights and I saw other stuff and I read a ton about it. I didn't pay 89 bucks or whatever it was to buy the pay-per-view. If I had paid 89 bucks to watch this, maybe I'm totally satisfied just with the excitement of having watched the fight, but I'm going to be out of my mind if I've watched this and then you tell me that what I just saw didn't just happen. That's Because that's essentially what boxing is doing there. They're saying what you just watched, what you just saw was not really what you just saw. We're the pros. We're the experts. We'll tell you what we saw and you didn't see what you saw. I, maybe they attained their goal. We're talking about it tonight. When when was the last time we ever talked about box, boxing? Never. And, and you're probably right. I, I'm sure that the promoter said, how do we get the folks on 900 CHML to talk about this tonight? Uh, to, me, it's a, to me, it becomes a gigantically frustrating sport. And here's the problem with it. What was it, 19? What year was Salt Lake City Olympics? 92, I think. 98. 2002. Thank you. That was, 98 was the one. You were getting in, there. I know. It was, yeah, 98 was uh, Nagano. 2002 was Salt Lake City. And that was where we had the, remember the Canadian pairs, figure yes. skaters, who got jobbed because the judges had decided ahead of time that they, were, they weren't going to win. Well, what happened to figure skating for a lot of people? I mean, it was helped immensely by Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. But after that, the fact that there was so much belief that it was a rigged sport hurt it. And they've, they've had to work exceptionally hard to try and convince people that that's not the case, to get people back on board. And they've done a good job of it. Credibility is a very difficult thing to recapture. That's right. It's something that should be cherished far more than it is, rather than taken for granted. And once you lose it, boy, it's, uh, it's, it's twice as hard to get it back than it is to earn it the first time, I think. Well, there's all kinds of reasons why s- pretty much every sport has the death penalty, figuratively speaking, for people who would bet on a game or who would throw a game. or Pete who Rose. Would, 
Pete Rose or the NBA official uh, Donahay who got caught doing stuff, or there's been soccer referees in Europe who have been caught doing it. There they is, shoot them over there. Well, there's no there's no second chance because what you just said that if you are the person who is killing the credibility of our sport, one person can do it. Amazingly, yep. our sport dies if nobody believes that the outcome is legit. Uh, if you, you go to what? a soccer match and you think that it's going to be fixed, so that it doesn't matter what your favorite team does, the outcome is predetermined. What do you think? I, I don't think it took long after Soul 88 and the Ben Johnson uh, fiasco for um, the 100 meters to regain credibility. I mean, it was a bit tarnished, but it's still the, it's still uh, the, the jewel of the Olympics. Yes and no, Don. I, I, I've said years this. Ago. No, but I've said this before many times that I think that, for example, Donovan Bailey, who never, to my knowledge, never had a whiff of steroids around him. No one ever accused Donovan Bailey of cheating with mm-hmm. drugs. And yet I think that Donovan Bailey got nowhere near the, even though he was a big star in Canada and a legend, I don't think he got near the legend status that he would have had he not followed Ben Johnson because there was always, Canadians were always waiting for the other shooter drop for something because you don't want to fully invest if you're thinking, oh, I remember what happened when Ben Johnson won and how excited I was. And then when it all went down the tubes, I don't want that. That didn't take long. But you're always thinking, even though there was no reason to, I don't know if I want to really buy into the whole Donovan Bailey thing because what if? Yeah, but it didn't circle the drain. You know, it didn't. It didn't, but it it hurt. It it had an effect. Yeah, it it had an effect, effect. but it bounced back pretty fast. And if you had another NBA referee who was caught or a few more soccer games where you were led to believe the outcome was predetermined or if in NHL, if you started to find out that the command center where they were doing the the replay booth back in Toronto... If they were making decisions that were affecting the outcome of a game because a gambler had got to them, boy, those those leagues are yeah. you're 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 I'm holding my fingers a millimeter apart. You're that close to being in real trouble, and that's that's why I just can't believe people still spend the money on boxing when it looks like that's what I think the difference is between it's either ineptitude or something else. I think there's a big difference between the command center in Toronto and the boxing world, though. And I think because it's more broadly judged, I'm not trying to stick up for hockey, but um, everybody can see it and everybody knows. Boxing's a little more difficult to judge, and there's a lot less accountability in the boxing industry, I think, than there are a lot of the other professional sports. I think that's fair. For the one reason, name me one boxing judge. Yep, good point. And how many big, how many, uh, well, and... Name me the top boxing referees. They only need one now. You don't yep. need half a dozen. Yeah, and I used to, I probably could have once upon a time named five boxing referees. The yeah. only one whose name comes to mind now is Mills Lane, and he's retired. He may actually have passed on. It's been a while. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, tomorrow we are told that... Barring something truly bonkers, Gary Bettman will stand in front of the Board of Governors and take a vote, and Seattle is going to be rubber-stamped as the 32nd NHL franchise. And 
made me start to think that, well, we still have rumors that Houston wants a team. They've got, I think it's, they are the third or the, the fourth biggest TV market in the United States. They don't have a team. Kansas City, we keep hearing, wants a team. Quebec City, we know, wants a team. Hamilton wouldn't mind a team. I'm forgetting a few others that uh, Oklahoma City has talked about wanting a team. The NHL, the depth of the players, the number of players that can actually play the game is much higher now than it ever was before. Once upon a time, you had two lines of guys that could play hockey and two lines of guys who were filling uniforms and couldn't play. Now, the gap from second line to fourth line is not necessarily all that huge. Why doesn't the NHL just say, you know what, we're making a lot of money off expansion. We're going to be the first team ever to have 40 teams in our league. Why not? Why not just go ahead and do it and say, we'll take the expansion money and we can actually make this work now? I'm not convinced that's not their plan. They don't share their plan publicly, right? They have to grow it uh, gradually. But there's one thing that you haven't heard Gary Bettman or Bill, Bill Daly say is, okay, that's it. We're not going above 32. They didn't say it at 30. They didn't say it at 32. And there's no evidence that they're going to stop as long as they can find guys with enough cash that want to buy teams and make the markets work. I guess a, uh, a realist would say it's almost time to say uncle in Arizona and Florida, and we should all be in good markets. But when you hit the home run like you did in Vegas, and assuredly another good center in Seattle, I I wouldn't suggest that they are. They do plan to stop, and and it's it's a slow growth, right? But with with the the taking off uh, after the trade of Wayne Gretzky from Edmonton to L.A. and the location of teams in the Sun Belt and those cities, as you've mentioned before, Austin Matthews is likely a product of the uh, uh, the Phoenix Coyotes and and Arizona Coyotes because um, he's just a kid that the number of players and the number of elite athletes now playing hockey, there's likely going to be, if they if they don't go real fast, enough athletes to keep the brand of hockey and the level of hockey high. And as long as somebody wants to pay five or $600 million for a team, um, the guys in Florida can start dining out with their expansion money to keep their team that they wish was doing well afloat. I was just looking at this today and it always had been, it had always seemed to me to be the case that we've expected or just assumed that when you get to 32 teams, because it's a nice round number and it's divisible by four, you've got the four conferences, that that would be it, that that would be done for the NHL. And then I just started to think, well, who says, who says, why would you not? If you're the NHL and let's say five years from now, things are still moving along tickety-boo and you've got no severe drop-off in the talent. All of a sudden you're not... And keep in mind, we've heard endless talk over the last few weeks, especially through the William Nylander discussion, that this is now a young man's league. Which means there's going to be a lot of old guys, old being 30-plus, still looking to play somewhere who can probably still play the game, but money, if nothing else, has pushed them out. If I'm the NHL five years from now and everything else is going fine and I say I can get, give or take, $500 million, it'll probably be more than that, 
from Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Quebec, and Houston. That's $2 billion to split between my owners. Why in the world would you not do that? It would be it would be particularly tempting, but you have to. I, I don't think in four or five years you're going to see them add that many teams. Uh, okay, so two in five years and two in five after that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's going to continue to grow, and and, and I I agree that the players' stock right now of guys that are now retiring who really don't want to at thirty three can still play at a very high level. And there's enough of those guys that will still make it interesting. And the only the only thing for a player um, at an elite level that's getting paid seven or eight million dollars a year now has trouble doing is playing for three million. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you've made enough money, you don't want to play. But there's a lot of guys that still want to play. That's how we stock the senior league with players. We get former pros that still love playing hockey. And if these guys continue to want to play, and you're going to be in Houston, you're going to be in nice cities then I think they will. One thing that the NHL really screwed up and seemingly has never forgotten, although there's nobody around that was owning a team back then, was in 1967 when they doubled the size of the league. And there was not enough hockey players. There weren't enough Americans. There weren't certainly Canada still supplied 90% of the players. And there just weren't enough at that level. And so they've learned from that. But there's a lot more players, and nobody from Europe was playing in 67. You know what I mean? Now it's a global game. And there's kids from Germany, there's kids from Sweden. and Well, I, mean, I said there's... When there's I say kids that, who just played, they signed in Toronto from Sweden. I mean, there's all kinds of Swedish guys. When I said about the second to fourth lines, there's guys in the AHL right now in most franchises that would be really no different from a fourth line guy in the NHL. There's really no reason... I mean, the Leafs today traded a guy like Josh Levo uh, to, to Vancouver for some guy that no one's ever heard of before. Uh, Josh Levo has been up and down with the AHL. He plays in the AHL. He plays in the NHL. He's interchangeable. There's tons of guys like that. And guys like Levo, I think, I believe he was going to have to start clearing waivers to go down, so we may as well train him for somebody that doesn't have to clear waivers right. that can play. That's how deep the Leafs are. It's their turn right now to have a lot of depth. There's lots of places that don't have that depth. But but you're right. I mean, I I don't think there's any evidence, and they've certainly not said, we're stopping at 32. Hall of Fame Commissioner Gary Bettman says, you know, we have a lot of interest from a lot of places to be in the National Hockey League. Quebec built a building. I... I it, it it had been something, as I say, that I had just always assumed that this would probably be it, that Quebec was now on the outs and would be only relying upon the failure of the Panthers or the failure of the Coyotes or someone to get their chance. I'm, no lo- I'm not convinced of that. I am not convinced of that. I'm not convinced that the NHL would not do exactly what we're talking about. Well, I think the other thing that uh, everybody thought it would stop at 32 for very practical reasons, they had to balance up the divisions. I mean, it makes pretty good sense. If you haven't got 30 and then you need Detroit comes into the East and all of a sudden you got a bit of an imbalance and we better fix that. I mean, the American Hockey League have a Pacific division. Mm-hmm. They have an entire division out there now. Yeah, which is, which they don't even play the same schedule. It's the weirdest, well, it's the weirdest league ever. Conversation now. for another day. Yeah, we don't have an American is. League team in here, but they don't play as many games as, as the teams in the East. Figure that one out. It is a bit weird.
anyway, I, I, I wait to see because if there's one thing that owners of teams do grow accustomed to or certainly grow comfortable with, it's getting large checks. Expansion money is good, the, the, the key thing. And one of the driving things, again, I think that NHL thought they were something that apparently they weren't when they did their last major TV deal, not this past one, but prior to that. And with CBS and all the different ones, I think it's more of a national sport now. I think NBC can sell it. And NBC is going to say, you know, the Houston market is pretty cool. And I think I think that's why they stay in Phoenix. I think the NHL also so, is... I don't know if anybody in Phoenix watch it. But. No, but I think the, NH, the NHL is the one league that could go up to 40 teams. The NBA, sorry, the NFL and Major League Baseball, you need too many people in your seats to go into a really small market. You can't go into every yeah, market and yeah. put 30,000 for every baseball game or 80,000 for a football They're game. They're not you going can't to do Toledo. It. Now, they are in Green Bay, but that's a historic market. You can't do that everywhere. You can't so, replicate so that everywhere. It's also a one-off, right? Every league I mean. has one. That's what I mean. You can't do that everywhere. The NBA... I'm not sure you can do it in a smallish market because for two reasons. One is the small markets oftentimes are just getting pounded and there's not a lot of fun. There's not a lot of in, a, ability to get a team and a fan base fired up if you're last place every time. Yeah. And because of the salaries now and the way their cap is set up, it, it's not really a salary cap. It's a salary guideline. The, the, the NHL has a hard cap. You could actually, as long as you can crunch the numbers and make sure that you can somehow make it go, as long as you get a rink from someone, now that's no sure thing, but as long as you get a rink from someone, you at least have fixed costs. People can argue all day long whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you do have fixed costs. That may, in fact, Scott, be one of the, one of the factors that, that might permit uh, the National Hockey League to have 40 teams versus the other teams expanding. And I'm not talking about the small markets you are, although I think I am. I don't know what I'm talking about. Who am I kidding? <laughs> anyway, but the, the reality is if, if, you're, if you go into Oklahoma City, which is not New York City, not to be confused at all, but if you know that the Toronto Maple Leafs and the New York Rangers can't spend $200 million on salaries and just knock the snot out of you because they got all this money. Toronto are flexing their money, uh, their mu- muscles with their money now. We can talk about that later today or another day. But Kansas City can go in and compete. They've got the floor and they've got the top. Vegas did it, but nobody's going to be able to blow you out because they can spend three times the amount of money. If you're and, smart, you can compete. And these other leagues that have these quasi-caps that are about as, well, they got about as much, uh, they got no teeth. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, baseball, basketball—they've got uh, you can pay luxury tax. So the New York Nets can throw sixty million dollars into a luxury tax and pay another—I don't know—seventy-five million. So it's cost them one hundred and twenty-five, but they can beat the hell out of all the small market teams because they got the dough. Mm-hmm. The National Hockey League doesn't. That may bode well for them to continue to to expand because, as you say, they only need. 17,000 people. They only need them 40 nights uh, a year. And that's not poo-pooing that. That's a big number. But it's attainable in a smaller market. Yep. Yep. It's an interesting one. I would be, uh, if I was Quebec, I wouldn't be throwing in the towel or waving the white flag just yet. I think that you may have to wait a little longer, but it's... But it's up $300 million since they wanted a team. 
Well, someone's going to have to find some dough. Right? Like it was around $300 million when they built that rink. Now yeah, it might be a billion by the time they get it. Fight, but, well, it's a billion Canadian damn near now. Yep. And having put all that much money into the rink, to me, where they are right now, they're like the guy who's been sitting at the slot machine for an hour. And you know that one of these times you're going to get the, the winning pull. So you're afraid to walk away because of all the money you've put into it because you don't want the next guy to get it. You've now invested, you've passed the point of no return in Quebec with this arena thing. You've got to pay whatever you pay. If they say it's a billion dollars, if you're Quebec, can you really turn around and go, uh, yeah, no, we'll just stick with our empty arena. Well, you've got to go for it. The last Canadian city that built an arena and assumed an NHL team would come now need new pipes and their concrete. And I wonder just, what that would be. Just down the street. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In studio with Don Robertson. A couple of emails, Don, coming in about that. Frank writes, it was the NHL in Vegas that more than aroused the rest of America and the world of hockey. That's a very... Uh, there were a lot of things aroused in Vegas from yeah. what I'm told. But I think he's right. I think if you can make a team, now they're struggling this year, but if you can make a team work in Vegas, which is the non-hockey market of all non-hockey markets in the middle of the desert. I know they've got some history. I know they've had some minor league teams in the past, but if you can make a team work like that in the desert, in a place where there are so many distractions and other opportunities for entertainment, who couldn't make it go? Honestly, who couldn't? As long as you've got brains and you've got creativity and you've got the willingness to put the effort in to, to... I don't mean as players, I mean to really build a good brand. Anybody could do it, apparently. So, so two two things somebody would be looking at if they were going to spend $500 million to get in a professional league is, first of all, can new franchises be successful at the gate and marketing and advertising? Well, um, lots of teams have been able to attain that. Vegas hit it out of the park. The second thing they're going to look at is, are they going to be crap? for six or seven years like so many franchises used to be. And the National Hockey League was no different than anybody else. Because the guys making the rules in the past have said, you know what, Here, here's what's fair to the new guy. And what they should have done is all went out for beer afterwards and say, would you think that was fair if you were starting a team? Because the guys that were asking if it was fair are the guys that didn't want to lose any players. So this time, when the National Hockey League as a business sat down and said, all right, we're gonna we're nipping this guy for five, half a billion dollars. We got to give him some players, and they did. So, as an owner, you look at two things: can I is it marketable out of the gate? Vegas, AAA, can they be competitive? They went to the Stanley Cup Finals. Boy, did they ever shoot it through the roof! Of course they did. Now they're back to a little bit more reality, but they're not in last place and they're not screwing up their salary cap and they got off to a good start. So they, they, the NHL have done two things correctly. They gave it to a place that could sell it this time and they gave them a chance to be competitive. No one thought they would go to the Stanley Cup Finals, but they weren't going to be an embarrassment to the league. And your, your reflection or your view on whether this was a good thing, the way the NHL did it or not largely probably depends on who you lost in the expansion draft. If you're a team that had nobody and you lost nobody of substance, you probably thought, this is great. We got a brand new team. It's doing well. It's good for the league. And wait so till f- wait till Seattle drafts. And if people around here are Leaf fans and they lose a significant player this time, 
but they won't. You won't. You can't lose. You get to protect like ten or twelve of your best players. Nobody has any more than ten or twelve. Oh, good players, there were a few really. guys. There were a few guys that were that were pretty good players that were yeah, but exposed. Vegas picked up some. Vegas got lucky too. Vegas picked up some guys because of their big uh, salaries, and they went to Vegas and really performed well. Flurry was a bonus. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Unless you have been. I don't know, on the International Space Station or something for the last few weeks. There's a Canadian back up there now, by the way, but totally unrelated. Unless you've been somewhere really not paying attention to what's going on in the world. And when I said past few weeks, past few months, past year and some, you would have heard a lot about Canadian oil. You've heard about pipelines and not pipelines and tankers and all kinds of stuff. What has happened through all of this is that in recent days, the price of Canadian oil has dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped, went down to a historic low in mid-November of $13.27 per barrel. That's the stuff that's coming out of Alberta. Well, on Monday, Rachel Notley, who's the premier of Alberta, decided to cut the uh, amount of oil Alberta is producing by 325,000 barrels a day to try to, you know, supply and demand, reduce the supply, pump up the demand. It worked, it seemed, because it reached a high of 29.95 per barrel, 20 almost $30 before dropping and closing at $21.93. It's a it's an improvement. But it's still a challenge for sure. I want to bring on Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, a favorite of ours, because he can explain all this economic and financial stuff in ways that the rest of us humans can understand. Marvin, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be here. You have talked on this show many times and probably on many other shows about how intimately connected the Canadian economy is to oil and oil prices and oil production and the oil industry. And when we look at the prices right now and we see what other countries are charging for oil and what we are charging for, and when we hear what Rachel Notley is saying, this is costing the province of Alberta, is this all having an impact on the entire country of Canada yet? The entire country. I'm going to say no on the entire country, but certainly it's having a big impact uh, in Alberta. And uh, I've seen actually a few editorial cartoons from newspapers in which there's sort of a, a... patient in the emergency room and standing by on life support kind of a picture in there. Uh, The situation is dire in Alberta. Now, look, uh, let me just start by saying I understand all the environmental concerns. Burning fossil fuels aren't good for the environment and what have you, but you can't turn an economy on a dime, especially an economy that has been so used to being fueled by oil. So here's, here's a couple of things that have happened. There's nothing wrong with the good Alberta crude. The sweet, light Alberta crude is worth $50 $50 a barrel, just like the world prices. But the people buying the Alberta oil say, well, just a minute, if I buy your oil, how am I going to get it from you? Oh, well, how about buy a pipeline? Well, wait a minute, uh, the pipeline called the Trans Mountain is full. It's actually got a three-year waiting time for oil. That's how much it's backed up. Oh, well, then I'll use the Enbridge Line 3. Wait a minute, Enbridge Line 3 won't be available until late 2019. Um, how about some train cars? Well, Alberta says we've ordered a bunch of train cars, and they'll arrive in 2019. Oh, so there's no easy way for me to get the oil, so I'm going to have to use some expensive method to distribute the oil. So I'm going to have to spend this extra money. I'm not going to pay you full value for your oil. I need to save some of that money to pay for the distribution to get it to my refineries or other places I want to deal with it. And that's the good stuff. That 29 barrel price you quoted, that's the good stuff. 
The stuff that's coming in from the oil sands is not sweet like crude. It is heavier crude. It is uh, full of sulfur. That's what makes it not sweet. And so that gets discounted even more. And so we've said for some time, for instance, with the tar sands, which have got billions and billions of dollars of investment, we really need to see oil prices closer to $70 a barrel so that when we discount it for the sort of what we'll call the Alberta discount, you're into the 20 to $30 a barrel range, and people can get at least a decent return on their investment. Otherwise, and this is what Rachel Notley did this today of, of uh, cutting the production, she doesn't want to see all investments stop in the Alberta economy. She doesn't want to see all kinds of new things not being built because those create other kinds of jobs, spin-off jobs, what have you. So this is unprecedented almost. Only once before in Alberta's history has it cut back on oil, and that was under Peter Lockheed when he ordered a cutback, not because of any price problems, but to teach Pierre Trudeau a lesson as he was trying to do the national energy policy. Will this not, though, So you're, and, and from what I've been reading, Al, yes, Alberta obviously is really struggling right now, but is it not inevitable that this will eventually spread to the rest of the country for a couple reasons. One is because Alberta has generally been a have province and a contributor to the equalization. If, if they don't have money, if they're having more people out of work, if they have fewer tax revenues, will this not start to spill into other parts of Canada? Yes, and that's a concern. That might mean, get this, that the only have problem, province in the group might be somebody like Saskatchewan, who's sitting on all that potash that gets used in... Uh, fertilizer production, you know, it is a time to rethink. And I think Rachel Notley, who's facing an election at some point next year, is making it very clear to the prime minister, I don't mind working with you on things like climate change, but I need to see some support back. Okay, you bought the Trans Mountain. Great. What are you going to do with it? Because so far, I don't see any action. I don't see anything moving. Meanwhile, let's remember that the same party, NDP premier in British Columbia, is saying, I don't want to see any action on this. And so something's got to give in all this. I, I, again, I think it's a balancing point between the environment and First Nations rights and oil. We've got to find a balancing point. Otherwise, we're really choking off our economy. You could only imagine if Donald Trump was the Prime Minister of Canada rather than the President of the United States, what, what kind of tweets he'd be issuing on this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business about the oil crisis that they're calling it in Alberta and how this will, can, possibly, maybe spill over to the rest of Canada. And Marvin, listening, reading a lot of stuff from out there over the last few days, part of the anger that seems to be coming from Alberta, and there's lots of reasons why they're angry, but among other things, they see the General Manager General Motors plant close in Oshawa and the federal government goes into a spasm of grief and gnashing of teeth about this. And that's, what, 2,500 jobs, something like that. I mean, it's significant, of course, but then they say, we've got 100 times, 50 times that number of people 